Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, February 2nd, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So this Sunday is the Super Bowl to be played by teams from mid to top tier East Coast cities. I will allow it. Boston, that's where the New England Patriots play. Well, they play in Foxborough. But they're a Boston team and the Philadelphia Eagles actually play in Philadelphia. Now, as a New Yorker, I am in a prime position to assess these two metropoli, each but a short Amtrak ride away. To help me in this assessment, I hit the streets to ask other New Yorkers to engage in a favorite local pastime, reckless stereotypes of entire cities. You could thank us, Philly and Boston, from our perch. We really do have good insight. First up, Felix. Hey, can I ask you guys a question, a sports question? Sure. Okay, uh, Super Bowls, Philadelphia against uh, the Patriots, right? Yeah. New England. What kind of person, I shouldn't say kind of person, but people from which town annoy you more, Bostonians or Philadelphia? Philly. Why? Why? Because, I don't know, I feel like uh, they, you know, I feel like they, they talk too much, <laughs> brag too much, and I feel like they're too cocky, man. Wait, that's not true about Boston people? Oh, that, well, you know what? You know what? I, you're right about that, too, because I've met a couple of people from Boston. Yeah, yeah. And um, now that I think about it, you know what? It's, it's kind of half and half. I would say it's half and half, man, but Boston is worse. Yeah, okay. Yeah, <laughs> they were. And then I talked to Daniel Clay. Same question was put to him. What do you like better? Philadelphians. Why? They're more down to earth than Boston people from Boston. So Boston people are snooty. Yes. Oh, that is true. That they're both kind of, they both have a reputation of being kind of obnoxious. Now, I have to tell you, so do New Yorkers, but I think that is an unfair reputation when it comes to New Yorkers. So they both have that obnoxious reputation, but I think you're right. Boston has that, has that snooty reputation, too. Yes. They think they're better than everybody. They do, right? Why is that? I guess because Boston is more closer to Maine. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. Proximity to Maine. Yeah, absolutely. Maine. Oh, all uppity. Up there in Maine. This being New York, we have one of everyone. I'm from Maine. So I went right to the source on this question of Maine. Um, everyone makes fun of people from Maine. I heard that. Yes. I heard it's like there used to be Polish jokes, now there are Maine jokes. There's really only Maine jokes. Tell me about what proximity to Maine does to people. Does it give them airs? Are you guys all snooty? Um, it gives people a place to come vacation in the wildlife, so I don't know what that even means. I actually just dropped a music video called Made in Maine. She did! We use moose instead of cars, the number of roads are tarred, and we can get from here to there, but it's pretty freaking fine. Some of these things are true about what we say and do. But what is fact and fiction? Well, I'll leave it up to you. Nothing moves too fast or is in high demand when you're living out here in vacation land. Oh, look, this isn't a celebration of Maine. It's a denigration of Boston and Philadelphia. Okay, not a denigration, an honest assessment from people who would know. New Yorkers, like me. And I did find a through line in my investigation. Lots of New Yorkers made a similar point. Here's Randall. Well, Boston, I would say they're more obnoxious. What makes them more obnoxious, if you could put your finger on it? 
just the way they are with the sports, you know. You go to the baseball game or any, uh, you go to the city with the Yankees hat on there. Very obnoxious. And Fuad. Yeah, Boston is worth it. I, I lived in Massachusetts, Springfield, Massachusetts, so I should know more or less. When you go out there to Massachusetts, next to Boston, you go out there with a New York hat, you got this regular Solivians in, in, in the streets. Hey, yo, F that. And you know what I'm saying? Stuff like that, but It's the Yankees hat. When you wear a Yankees hat, people get obnoxious to you, especially in Boston. On the other hand, when you wear a Red Sox hat in New York, we're all very cordial. We celebrate outsiders and their haberdasherial choices. We are open and kind and tolerant. And okay, maybe a little pointed. The Eagles are just like nothing. They're garbage and their fans like, I don't know, remember that movie? The one with Mark Wahlberg? The one with Bradley Cooper. Oh, yes, yes, uh, Silver Linings Playbook. Yeah, yeah, it's like... It's like that guy. You're going to make a movie about, like, a guy with a mental illness <laughs> and, like, the second most important thing is the Philadelphia Eagles. Like, that tells you everything about the fan base. That was Luke, and he is going to the Super Bowl on Sunday. He's a Giants fan, so he naturally dislikes the Eagles. But he also constitutionally dislikes Boston. So we weighed this, we chewed this over, and he and I came to a realization... I definitely hate Boston more. Yeah. 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 We, we pushed you towards it. I think you look down on Philly more, but you hate Boston more. That is true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very uh, well said. You know, because I'm going to the game, I had to do a lot of soul searching because I have to root for someone. Yeah. I did some soul searching. I'm going to be rooting for Philadelphia. All right. So there you have it from a New Yorker. Fly, Eagles, fly, you garbage, mentally ill miscreants. On the show today, we will update you about a documentary that we told you about. The documentary is Busted. It's about the 43 minutes that they thought there wasn't an MLK bust in the Oval Office. It's a brand new update. It's a new narrator. You're going to want to stay tuned for that. But first, her show on Comedy Central, Another Period, is back, and it's body, and it's making some good points. Ricky Lindholm is here. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Joining me now is one of the most foppish women in history, Lillian <laughs> Betancourt. 
Ricky Lindholm is her real name. The name of the show on Comedy Central is Another Period. And if you haven't seen it, it's, oh, it is the funniest send-up of the Gilded Age on basic cable that I've ever come across. <laughs> it's the only one, but that's It is, right. but it's it's uh, blazing a trail. Thank Ricky you. is also in Garfunkel and Oates, and you are Garfunkel? Yep. I would love to talk about this more, and I want to talk about the series, but Simon and Garfunkel harmonize beautifully, and yes. you guys refuse to harmonize, from it's, what I can hear. It's not that we refuse, <laughs> it's that we can't. What do you mean? It's like, it's, you don't know where the harmonies of a song are? <laughs> no, we do. It's like, we're just not that naturally good at it, and yeah. then we were like, singing in unison is a little ridiculous, mm-hmm. and I've never seen a duo that doesn't do any harmony and we're like well that's funny at least yes. it's different yes. and so we're like if we're always singing in unison I don't know what it is about unison that makes me laugh but also I think with Garfunkel Notes the lyrics are much more central and I don't know how many songs could get by just on a song Right, without True. the humor and I think that a I would say maybe two I think we have two songs which ones we have one called Such a Loser. Mm-hmm. The the melody is just gorgeous. And then we have one that's like this wedding song called Rainbow Connections. It's like a gay <laughs> wedding song. Didn't you play Fozzie Bear's Girlfriend? Yes, I did. Wait a minute. That's like a Rainbow Connection connection. It really is. You could pitch it to Kermit. Oh, my gosh. I you could have. That was so much fun. Yeah. That was like one of the most fun acting jobs I've ever had. Does it bother you a little bit when you see the Muppets' legs? Um, you know that those parts of the show when you see Kermit me. on the bicycle? It doesn't bother me. Does it bother you? It does a little bit. Mm. It's not the Muppets I know. I'm not a Muppet purist. Okay. I'm willing to go with the Muppets. But I don't think that they were envisioned from the waist down. So to see Gonzo ambulate is mm-hmm. a little... It's not the Gonzo. It's That's not how I... I thought he'd be more squat. They all have pretty thin legs. They do. Legs are an afterthought with Muppets. Yeah, they've got sort of thin, stringy legs that kind of hang down. <laughs> yeah. Except Piggy. I think Piggy's got some sturdy... Stout, sturdy. Yeah ankles you know those little heels with their feet kind of puffing out of the heels (laughs) yeah i I don't know i think actually now i'm thinking about i think i like the legs you do like muppet legs but it's interesting because it's such a sacred thing and you know when you're on the show my agent called and they're like well disney asked it before you publish any pictures you know instagram whatever you need to run them by yeah uh you know abc and i was like oh that's kind of strange then it was like i totally get why they don't want pictures where you see the the muppet cut off without the light they want to keep that traumatizing to a child yeah you don't want to see a puppet hanging on its stand you just want yeah and so um i sent them a few pictures and they were like these ones for these reasons and i was like oh that's totally fair (laughs) so on another period if listeners haven't seen the show i recommend it to them it is like i said it takes place in i think 1902 or probably Mm -hmm. 1905 by now yeah or actually it's now in 1904 but yeah now it's 1904 that's right because because i think episode two was about the Olympics yep. and the Olympics would be in St. Louis that year. It was mm-hmm. kind of like this weird off-year Olympics. Yeah, because um, it was there yeah. for the World's Fair. That's right. Mm-hmm. You ever read about the 1904 Olympics and who competed? It's really bizarre. <laughs> it was the first time women competed. Yes, and that's why the women archers mm-hmm. were invited There's on the show. There's only six women that competed and it yeah. was only in archery. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, okay, cool. so it was, and but we were assuming that People didn't like it, like the way that, like the female Ghostbusters. We sort of just assumed that <laughs> men right. were mad about it. Yeah, and so the yeah. whole episode is like, thing. what do we have without archery? Like, right. yes, we have Congress and control of the <laughs> banks, and the only people allowed to vote and can own land. But like, what does it mean without archery? And you know, it is a slippery slope, though. I it mean, really this is, is 2018, and women have arguably gained too much. I know. I mean, we're just in control of all professional sports now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, yeah. Men don't even play sports anymore. No, didn't weren't the anti-archers <laughs> in your? They don't play them well. They, you know what? They don't play them. Uh, sticking to the fundamentals. And we can say that women mm-hmm. do. You have a lot of good acronyms in the show. Yes. Like, what's the one with nags? 
Oh, the um, Newport Association of Galspinsters. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's and like the bags them, right? and the hags. Kate McCoochie's a, a nag. I know. I was like, do you want to come and play this? And then there's a scene in season one where I break a wine glass and I stab her in the eye with, <laughs> yeah. the, with the stem of the wine glass. Mm-hmm. And so the next time she came, she was like, I went and got this contact made. She got like a milky eye contact oh, made cool. at an optometrist. She's wow. like, wow. Yeah. She's, I, no, she didn't even submit the expense, the, the receipt for an expense. No, because awesome. well, she wanted to keep it. You know? Total tax right. Off, though, I mean, the milky I would have been ours if we had to pay for it. Yeah, so, that's right. Then you, you keep know. it on set, and like three different actresses pop in the same milky eye. Yeah, but now she wears an eye patch. She's, yeah. yeah, she really plays it down. So back to the 1904 <laughs> Olympics, which you know a lot about, but I remember reading about it, and there were teams of uh, Frenchmen and Americans, and then there were Aboriginal teams, really, and Native American teams. Yes, and this was this is so in keeping with your show because. Theories about race were rife at the time, and yeah. they wanted to determine what was the fastest and most superior Ugh. race. And so Aborigines played and threw the javelin against, you know, against non the white, the against white man. The whites. Oh yeah. God! There was yeah. the thing. The funniest one to me was there was a um, like the long distance running. There was I think like six guys, yeah. and I think like three of them cheated. They were because they were running in dress shoes and <laughs> socks and like little um, like they didn't have sporting clothes, right. and one of them got in a car. And then the other one, like, like beat up one of the teammates. Yeah, it was it was all a mess. But in 1904, cars were slower than man at the time. So right. he lost. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so you just gave me an, uh, something I was wondering about. You do enough research yeah. and enough research to make jokes. Mm-hmm. You certainly don't want it to be accurate. But do you even stop at a point where you're like, we don't need to know this much. We don't want to know this much. Totally. We don't want to know. We only want to know as much as a jumping off point. Yeah, like we have a scene in season two. It, it opens with a, a storyline about Harriet Tubman. You know, she was the most famous woman at the turn of the century. It was like her and Helen Keller. That's it. Also in the show? Yes. yes. And But Harriet was older. had been around longer. She was more famous. And we're like, how come she's the only person known for this and so we started thinking, what if she's a branding expert? Yeah. How do you think I became the Moses of my people? You think they just started calling me that on their own? And then we could stop researching her because we're like, okay, let's just turn her into Oprah. Jelson freed more slaves than anybody in history, but he didn't know a thing about branding. And she's got her own brand. That's and, her idea. Yeah. That's our jumping off point. Yeah. You read too much, could complicate it. Yes. Could get in and the so way. And so we just the... leave it there. And she, you know, there was a lot of fun things we left out. Like she had a really young boyfriend. Oh. There was like a lot of fun Tubman tidbits. But we're like, <laughs> we're just going to go with this branding Those expert. Those could be video ex- extras. Yeah, Tubman exactly. tidbits. Tub bits. <laughs> yeah, tub bits. <laughs> that, well, if she was a branding expert, those would be available in your grocer's freezer. Right, tub right. Bits. <laughs> oh, gosh. Have you read any books about the period as a result of being in the show? Yeah, we read a lot of books about the period. Just anything. Like, Natasha and I are constantly, Natasha Legero, my co-creator, and I are constantly sending each other books. And Jeremy Connor, our director, we're just always sending each other articles. And no, he's a dr- he's the drunk history guy, right? Yeah, he's the co-creator, director of drunk history, and he's, he's a writer and director on another period. He's directed every episode. Natasha and I, we just decided to make this short and we wrote this to show what it would really be like as a show and we're like who do we get to direct it I'm like oh I saw this short online it was on Funnier Diet it's called Drunk History yes Natasha had never seen it it was just a small little video and I sent it to her and she's like this seems like the right guy and that's how he ended up doing our short and then after we finished that Drunk History sold as a TV show so it wasn't like famous yet this is well first of all you got I mean for you to turn to someone who has like one or two videos online that's Mm -hmm. kind of how you made your name yeah that happened with you yeah well because you can see talent 
in a two minute video. Yeah. You can tell. Yeah. Like you can, and when you, you know, you ask around to make sure that they're nice and cool people to work you don't with. Work with an asshole. Yeah, because yeah. you you can make a two minute video and be an asshole, but you know, you want a nice person who makes a two minute video. Is the show shot in any way? I'm not technical, but through filters or framing or in some way that connotes literally another period. It is It is actually the opposite. We shoot it like a reality show. Right. We shoot it handheld. We sh- you shoot it the opposite of the way The Crown is shot or Downton Abbey. Like you barely, you don't see any beautiful shots really, or not that many. We, we want it to be kind of messy. Yeah. And just like just different than a typical period. Piece. Yeah. You'll do an interstitial. It'll be a quick cut. It'll be a zebra's ass. Yes. Yeah. And a lot of rap. Why? You know, that was, we found it in the editing room after we were editing the pilot, and it just didn't feel like Comedy Central enough. And we didn't want it to be too much like a reality show. Yes. And so we just experimented for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then our editor actually came up with the rap interstitial and showed it to us, and we're like, that's the missing piece. The guest stars and the recurring stars are amazing, and what a cast. I can't list everyone, just it's safe to say it's everyone who's funny in America yes. is in this show. Yes. Some foreign funny people, like yes. Jermaine Clement also. Isn't he the funniest? He's just, by looking, he's God, funny, he's, right? every single thing he says is funny. Yeah. Given your show, I've input all the characters and guest stars into a computer program, and I've created an algorithm. Okay. And what it does is it spits out the odds that different actors or actresses, or as we call them now, actors, will appear in your show. So okay. here are some. Right. Uh, Bob Odenkirk has a 98% chance of appearing. He hasn't, oh, he hasn't appeared I wish. yet. That would be awesome. But there's a Ben Stiller connection, yep. right? There's, you know, he's in a lot of things. Yeah. Jack Black was in the show. Janine yep. Garofalo, she has an 84% chance of appearing. Amazing. Is we she going to be in one? I would love that. This is weird. This, I thought it was an error, and you'll hear why. Paul Rudd, 203% chance of appearing, which seems you can't go over 100. What that means, and I examine the algorithm, he should have appeared twice already. Wow. This predicts he should have showed up maybe as two different characters. I guarantee you we've probably gone out to all three of those people <laughs> at some point. But, they, you know, people are all on shows and all those people are extraordinarily They'll do busy. it eventually. I mean, if you keep I, getting picked up, there's no way John Hamm is not showing up. Right? We John Hamm shows up to all these we things. We need a John Hamm. I mean, he's so perfect for it. It'd be funny to see him in like a servant role where he's getting totally yeah. abused and ignored yeah. and no one thinks he's attractive and everyone's That's what you just have like to do. yeah he has to be like a boot polisher you have to make you boy. have to yeah you have to throw him like a ditch digger cover him with scabs yeah exactly just do something with makeup so he's disgusting people puke upon seeing right cuz if he plays like a handsome prince yeah. you're like well of course yes. but so our show yes. he'll have to play a deckhand <laughs> <laughs> and i also like all the good cocaine humor this so is much. a different kind of cocaine humor than well, we cocaine usually wine get. was real more cocaine wine yes a bit more won't hurt. Any lady in Newport society needs to know how to hold her liquor. Well, I can hold my liquor better than anyone. Me too. Oh, oh my goodness. That sounds like a challenge. Shall we see who can drink it the fastest? Oh, yes, yes. That was Sigmund a real thing. Sigmund Freud loved cocaine. I'm sure he did. But cocaine was legal and cocaine wine was real yeah. and In fact, I, I did some research. And in 1885, Merck, their product, Merck, big drug maker, their production of cocaine was at 83,000 kilograms. Okay. That's 90 tons of cocaine. Oh, God. That is as much as the United States seized last year. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So they were legally making as much cocaine in 1885 when the population was like a quarter of what it is. God, why did it get outlawed? Uh, I'm glad you asked. Yeah. So... Because <laughs> it was in Coca-Cola. It was originally. in Coca-Cola. Freud praised it to the heavens. But he noticed that he was, for instance, botching surgeries left and right oh, no. when he used it. Yeah. And he had this friend named, uh, feel free to use this, 
Dr. Ernst von Fleischel Marxzo, <laughs> who had a hand injury, which he treated with morphine. And then Freud said, oh, forget the morphine. You could become addicted. I'll give you cocaine. And he literally became the first morphine cocaine addicted person and died seven years oh, later. Oh, no. <laughs> seven years? That's not bad for a morphine cocaine. I mean, that's seven good years yeah. at the end, right? We have Freud on our show. <laughs> season one, because I don't know if you know this about Sigmund Freud, but he used to, um, I don't know how dirty this show can be. Well, I said motherfucker. Okay, before, so yeah. he would... He he would masturbate women to help them not have hysteria. Sure. Yeah. So so yeah. Freud comes and he he diagnoses our brother as gay <laughs> and then he helps all the women masturbate so they don't become hysteric or it, hysterical. It worked, yeah. right? Yeah, we, yeah, we all were better. But um, I saw one of the maids do that with a uh, feather duster with you. Yes, in the that bath. was that was Blanche. That <laughs> yeah, was that was, that nice. was yeah, Beth Dover. Well, from what you've gleaned from this conversation, you're either into the show or you're not. I don't yeah. know how many people are on the fence. I it, do feel like people love it or they're yeah. like, that is so not for me. Ricky Lindholm of the TV show on Comedy Central. Uh, new episodes up now. Another period. Ricky, it was very nice to meet you. Thank you for having me. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. And now the spiel. Recently, we reported, really, we brought you a great work of art and literature and journalism. It's a documentary that was recently honored with a Peabody. Actually, to be fair, it was a Peabody, Massachusetts Public Library Award and an honorable mention. And uh, since that time, this documentary was recast. The narrator was rehired so as to broaden the appeal, the potential audience. I'd like to tell you about it right now. There, Donald Trump stood, like St. Sebastian, plucked with so many arrows, arrows of untruth, as he sought to apply the balm of sunlight to those grievous wounds. But one fresh cut couldn't be ignored. That time, a time reporter thought, but then quickly corrected, the statement that there was a statue of Martin Luther King that Trump had removed from the Oval Office. Donald Trump is still upset about this. Here was Trump speaking about the indignity one year ago. So Zeke, Zeke from Time Magazine writes a story about, I took down, I would never do that because I had great respect for Dr. Martin Luther King. But this is how dishonest the media is. Perhaps we, we as common folk, who dare not reach the heights of a great man like Trump, which is to say the exact height of six foot three, the weight of 239. Perhaps we cannot appreciate the ravages of such a mistake. Perhaps we can't understand the magnitude of the implications of the suggestion of the intimation of what this may have meant for the man, the presidency, the country, us, all the animals under God's domain. Luckily, a documentary film crew has compiled the definitive account of the 43 minutes when it was thought, erroneously thought, but thought, that a small statue had changed rooms. 
MAGA Productions and DreamWorks. Oh, wait, I read that wrong. MAGA Productions and the American Dream is Dead Works. The American Dream is Dead Works present busted 43 minutes of crisis and conflict hosted by someone who sounds a lot like Dana Loesch. The night of January 20th was a night of history and import. The president had just finished his inaugural address hours before. He was unstinting on that cold Washington day, staring out at a mall packed with people. His speech stunned the heavens, stopping the rain. It was chilly, con carnage. But at 7.31 that evening, Zeke Miller, a reporter for Time magazine, put out the word, picked up by the pool reporter, that a bust of Martin Luther King Jr. placed by Barack Obama in the Oval Office was nowhere to be seen. Zeke Miller. Yeah, it must have been blocked from my sight. But the only thing that was blocked was the fourth estate's last vestige of credibility, because the bust was actually there. Again, Zeke Miller. Yeah, I I checked, and it turned out the bust was there. So I tweeted a correction. I apologized. But in fact, and we have to emphasize this because Zeke Miller seems so unacquainted with the very notion of facts. Zeke Miller tweeted out several corrections and apologies. Not a correction. Several corrections and apologies. Right, that's what I'm saying. 8.14 p.m., Zeke Miller tweets, Correction, the MLK bust is still in the Oval Office. It was obscured by an agent and door. He tweets again, White House aide confirms MLK bust is still there. I looked for it in the Oval twice and didn't see it. My apologies to my colleagues. 15 minutes after that, this is on me, not my colleagues. I've been doing everything I can to fix my error. My apologies. To which the then press secretary, Sean Spicer, tweets, Apology accepted. Huh. Easy for you to say, Sean. What about America? Or don't you remember that at 7.31 it was reported there was no bust and the correction came at 8.14? In those 43 minutes, suspicion, uncertainty, and possibly statuary, if not statutory malfeasance, ran roughshod over a frightened nation. We live in a time of tumult and upheaval, and we need to know that for solace in these times, our leaders can gaze upon the correct head and upper neck statue. And this is what Sean Spicer noted in his first official press briefing one day after accepting Zeke Miller's apology. At a time when he's trying to unite this and he keeps talking about uniting this nation, bringing people together, and then a tweet goes out in a pool report to, what, a few thousand people saying that he removed the bust of Martin Luther King? How do you think that goes over? It did not go over well. And why? Because Zeke Miller might have thought he apologized to the right people in America, but he didn't apologize to the one person who is America. He apologized to his colleagues in the press. He has not apologized to the president. Kellyanne Conway went on Fox News three days and 43 minutes after the incident. And the damage is done because then people People look at Donald Trump as the R-word, the darn bust was right there. I was standing next to it. And for 43 darn minutes, nay, damnable minutes, the country could not know this. Is it too far to say that it threatened to tear the nation asunder? It is not. To say less would be a calumny upon the goodness of America. The president knew as much, so he traveled to CIA headquarters, stood before a wall memorializing slain CIA agents, agents who, in defending their country, paid with their lives. 
and the president rightly chose to spend three of his 15 minutes of speaking time highlighting the dishonest media, underreporting his inauguration attendance, and overreporting the lack of an MLK bust in the Oval Office. This is among the most harrowing challenges any president has ever inherited. Eric Foner is a Columbia University professor of history. His 2010 work, The Fiery Trial, Abraham Lincoln and American Slavery, won the Pulitzer Prize in history. Kennedy inherited the plan that became the Bay of Pigs. Fort Sumter was fired upon a month after Lincoln's inauguration. But the 43 minutes where the bust of King was thought to have been removed? I would say that was the greatest crisis any young president has ever known. Foner does not say this lightly. Actually, he does not say this at all. That was Jack Scribnick of Mechanicsburg, Virginia. He once read an article that Foner wrote. But it wasn't just leading public intellectuals and their acolytes who came to regard the perceived absence of the MLK bust as a crisis. The shockwaves went far beyond the cloistered halls of academe. They were felt as far away as Zanesville, Ohio, the home of Lucy Manju, an out-of-work beautician and Trump voter who's rooting for Donald Trump to shake up Washington. The night of the misreported bust appearance, here's how she recalls those 43 minutes of dread. So what happened? A statue? No, uh, it's more more of a bust, like uh, just the head and neck part of the statue. Like breasts? No, no, but it, it, they said it was there and then it wasn't there. Did you hear about this? Am I supposed to give a damn? You can hear the confusion in the voice of Lucy and the silent voices of so many others crying out in the night. In the end, Martin Luther King's head was restored. In fact, the president chose to celebrate MLK Day this year with a proclamation and no public events. But as he went to dinner at his golf club, he shouted to a reporter, I am the least racist person you have ever interviewed. That I can tell you. You can tell us, Mr. President, but we have learned once again that the media cannot be trusted to do so. Not Eric Miller, not Zeke Miller, not Zeke Miller's Twitter feed. Not Zeke Miller's copious apologies to individuals who are not the president. Wow. Wow. Still powerful, powerful stuff. This has been a dream where, oh, screw that one up again. This has been an American Dream is Dead Works production. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Pierre Bienname, who won't give in to what he calls stinking thinking. Mary Wilson, the senior producer of The Gist, measures twice, cuts once, thinks about it four or five hundred times. Steve Licktag, executive producer of Slate Podcast, has a thinking checklist. Item one, don't cross off the items once you've thought about them, because it'll be hard to remember for the next time. The Gist, our motto, cogito ergo angus. I think, therefore, I lab. Umpru depru dupru, and thanks for listening. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive, sought after, rare, and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.